Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Ramadan Mubarak to you and yours. This Ramadan, as we all gather to share a meal with our loved ones, we need to remember those in Gaza who are also gathering to share a meal with so many who aren't there that were just there a year ago. Since October the 7th, the Human Development Fund has assisted over 200,000 people in Gaza, providing them with essential aid such as food baskets, water, hot meals, winter items, shelter, hygiene kits, and baby formula. Your generous contributions are making a significant impact, especially in Rafah. Let's sustain this momentum and continue providing crucial support during this sacred and blessed month. Please visit hdfund.org slash qalam. That's hdfund.org slash qalam, Q-A-L-A-M, to learn more about our global reach this Ramadan and choose where you'd like to direct your support during this blessed month. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this month a time of mercy, solace, acceptance, and triumph for the ummah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And may Allah continue to use all of us as a means and never replace us. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sirah, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash kalaminstitute. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Inshallah, continuing with our series and study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, As-Siratul Nabawiyyah. In the previous session, we were talking about Al-Bay'atul Aqaba Al-Thaniyah, the second pledge or oath of allegiance that was given to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam by the Muslims of Al-Madinatul Munawwara, or what was Yathrib at that time, what would become Medina. Not only was an oath of allegiance given at this particular time to the Prophet um, by you know another new 70 some odd individuals, but at the same time, a contract or an agreement was put into place. A consensus was established that the Prophet of Allah وسلم, would move to Al Madinatul Munawwara eventually, and he would start sending the Muslims over there to relieve them from the circumstances in Mecca, and that Medina would basically become uh, a place that would host the Prophet, وسلم, the Muslims of Mecca, and also Islam. So this understanding was there that this will become a place and a base of operations for the further propagating of the religion of Islam. Now after all of this was agreed to and it was put into place, before we go on to talk about in the next session insha'Allah, where the people actually start to depart from Mecca and arrive in Medina and some of the very powerful stories that occurred at that time. You know, uh, again, I always talk about this, I keep bringing this up, it's a reoccurring theme, if you will. But, you know, whenever we talk about many, many different instances in the life of the Prophet ﷺ, we talk about them out, it, it almost seems like we talk about them outside of reality. 
We recount the story. We have a half a page or a page or maybe if we're lucky, two pages worth of material. And we just tell a story. And on top of that, many times we romanticize a lot of the stories. And what we end up doing in that process is that we remove a lot of the human dynamic, the human element. And we don't really tell or understand or even ourselves grasp the reality of those circumstances. You know, and, and just think about it. Again, when we talk about the Hijrah, we talk about like this glorious moment where Muslims are leaving and celebrating and partying and there are banners and confetti and balloons. We're going to Medina, we're going to Medina. And then if any of us have ever been to Medina, then we're thinking of an air-conditioned bus and you get on there and about four or five hours later while you're sipping on your mango juice, right? Then all of a sudden you arrive in Medina and it's like, yay, Medina, right? And when you arrive in Medina, Medina, there's in this colossal masjid, Masjid al-Nabawi, and there's a five-star hotel waiting for you. And then you go downstairs and you eat a shawarma. Like this is kind of the idea, the mental image that we have. We have to understand what the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum, the companions of the Prophet were dealing with. This was a mass migration of people. I mean, there are very, very powerful moving, powerful, and even in some cases, tragic stories. People sneaking out in the middle of the night, people being chained and shackled, people being killed and murdered, while they're sneaking through the desert in the middle of the night. People's families being held hostage. People's property being taken away from them. People being chased down, hunted down, and being brought back like a wild animal on a leash. Like these were very, very powerful stories. So we'll be talking about that. But before we move on to actually talk about the migration and the migration of people, individuals, groups, families, a community from Mecca to Medina, I'd like to kind of wrap up this incident that occurred at, here at this time in the 13th year of the Prophet ﷺ preaching and teaching the message of Islam here in Mecca. So it's the season of Hajj, they're in Mina. These 60 some odd individuals have come to the Prophet ﷺ from Yathrib, Al-Madinatul Munawwara, they've accepted Islam, they give their pledge and oath of allegiance they informed the Prophet ﷺ of many, many more believers that are back in Yathrib in Medina who have been converted to Islam over a year of efforts conducted by the young Musa bin Umair, the young dynamic preacher, very passionate, you know, believer, Musa bin Umair radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And at this point in time, they make a specific appeal that we see your circumstances in Mecca, we understand what you've been going through, we would like to request you to come and join us in Medina, in Yathrib. Because we think this would be beneficial. We obviously would love to have you, Ya Rasulullah. We believe in you as a Prophet of Allah. Why wouldn't we want to host you in our city? Have you as our neighbor. See your beautiful face every single day. Pray behind you. Learn from you. But also, we would be able to relieve you and our brothers and sisters in faith from the, these terrible circumstances here in Mecca. So Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, sits with the Prophet ﷺ, and they basically agree to this. 
Now that they've given that pledge and oath of allegiance, Abbas starts off the discussion by letting them know, you are taking on a serious responsibility and some very, very serious, some very serious um, risks if you are taking him with you. You will be responsible. You got to own up to it. You got to be ready for the task. And they all agree to that. And everything is said and done. At this particular time, there's a couple of interesting narrations that talk about the immediate aftermath of all of this being settled. The immediate aftermath. The first thing is I'd like to mention is a narration that Ibn Ishaq mentions and Ibn Hisham mentions it in his seerah as well. Ka'ab bin Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu was one of the Ansar, a young poet from the Ansar, from the people of Medina, who was one of the first people to take the pledge and the oath of allegiance. Also, let's not forget that after these people accept Islam, the Prophet ﷺ asks for 12 men to step forward and appoints them as leaders of their communities. So all of this has been done now. Ka'ab bin Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he says at this particular time that فَلَمَّا بَايَعْنَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ سَرَخَ الشَّيْطَانُ مِنْ رَأْسِ الْعَقَبَةِ بِأَنْفَذِ صَوْتٍ سَمِعْتُهُ قَدْتُ He says that after we had given our oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ, shaitan screamed out from that area of Aqaba, the valley there in Mina, he screamed out with the loudest voice that I've ever heard. He said, يَا أَهْلَ الْجُبَاجِبْ Ya Ahlal Jubajib. And Jubajib was basically what they would refer to as the different camps that they would set up there in Mina. So he's calling out, O oh people of the camps, all these encampments. Hallakum fi mudhammamin wasubati ma'ahu. That qada ijtama'u ala harbikum. He says, Hallakum fi mudhammamin. Mudhammam is basically the antonym. It is the opposite of the word Muhammad. Muhammad comes from Hamd, means praise. Muhammad, the one who is frequently praised. The opposite of Hamd is them. Right? Them is to talk bad about someone. To talk bad about someone. So Mudhammam means the one who is frequently criticized. So this is shaitan disrespecting the Prophet ﷺ and he's calling the Prophet ﷺ mudhammam instead of Muhammad. And then as-subat. Subat basically is from the word saba'a. Saba'a means somebody who forsakes their religion, somebody who abandons their faith. It's called a sabi. So what the, a lot of the leaders of the Quraysh who were opponents of the Prophet ﷺ, they used to call the Prophet ﷺ as-sabi. The one who has forsaken his religion of his people. And so the people who followed him, they would call him they would call them Subat. These are all abandoners. These are all heretics. These are all apostates and heretics. So they would call them Subat. So Shaitan is saying, that do you know what's going on with Mudhammam? Referring to the Prophet. And do you know what's going on with his band of heretics? What's going on with this band of apostates? He says, They have gathered together to fight against you. So this is shaitan probably because Ka'b bin Malik says, I can hear this person screaming that this is shaitan in a human form 
as occurs in different places in the seerah, like we're going, when we talk about the migration of the Prophet ﷺ, it is shaitan who comes in the shape, in the form of a very old man. And he's the one that proposes the, uh, the, the, the idea of trying to assassinate the Prophet ﷺ. So this is probably shaitan here again in human form. And now he's saying to them, do you know what's going on with Muhammad and his band of followers? They're getting together to fight you, which is obviously false. قَالَ فَقَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمْ هَذَا أَزَبُّ الْعَقَبَةً So either Ka'b bin Malik informs the Prophet ﷺ, or the Prophet ﷺ can hear it. And he says, this is أَزَبُّ الْعَقَبَةً Which is basically one of the names of shaitan, Azab. So he says, this is shaitan who's talking, don't pay any attention to him. وَهَذَا ibnu azyab That this is shaitan, don't pay any attention to him. Another narration, the Prophet ﷺ even says, أَتَسْمَعُ أَيْعَدُوَ اللَّهِ That do you hear me, O enemy of God? The Prophet ﷺ responds to shaitan, Listen to me, O enemy of God. أَمَّا وَاللَّهِ لَأَتَفَرَّغَنَّ لَكَ That nobody's gonna pay any attention to you. No one's gonna pay any attention to you. ثم قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إرفضوا إلى رحالكم. The Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم now realizing that Shaytan is here trying to instigate a situation, he tells because you can imagine I talked about this in the previous session as well that. Imagine the scene where the Prophet ﷺ for 13 years having gone through all the difficulty and all the heartache is gathered together in a tent that is packed from wall to wall with 60, 70 people sitting in front of him all standing up and giving him the oath of allegiance you know, literally um, you know, pushing each other to come and put their hands in the hand of the Prophet ﷺ. So it's a very powerful moment. So the Prophet ﷺ realizing that shaitan is trying to instigate something here, the Prophet ﷺ says, this will really um, look very intimidating. If some of the Quraysh come and they see this tent packed full of dozens of people, and they're all sitting there around the Prophet ﷺ, attentively listening to him. This is gonna really intimidate them. So he says, Irfadu The Prophet ﷺ says, disperse from here, go back to your tents, go back to your camps, pack up your stuff, you should head out as early as possible. The narration goes on to mention as mention that Abbas bin Ubada, who is one of these Ansar, he says, Ya Rasulullah, Walladi Ba'ataka bil Haqi, in Shi'ta Lanami Lanna ala ahli mina ghadan bi asyafina. That one of the Ansar says, O Messenger of Allah, I swear by the one who sent you with the truth. I swear by Allah that if you want, all you have to do is give us the signal. If you want, we will attack all these people here in Mina tomorrow with our swords. We will, we will basically prepare tonight and tomorrow morning, we will declare war, we will unleash our swords upon the people here in Mina. We don't need to disperse, we're not afraid, we're not, we're, we don't need to hide. We're ready to take these people head on. So give the word, Ya Rasulullah. The Prophet ﷺ responds to him, he says, لَمْ نُؤْمَرْ بِذَلِكَ We have not been commanded, we have not been told to do so. That's not our mandate. That's not our responsibility. That isn't our you know, mandate right now. That's not what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded us. I reiterate, go back to your camps. Go back to your transportation. Go back and pack up your stuff. So 
the Ansar, they basically say that, فَرَجَعْنَا إِلَى مَضَاجِعِنَا فَنِمْنَا فِيهَا حَتَّى أَصْبَحْنَا He says that we went back to where we were resting, where we were sleeping, and we, we basically went to sleep and stayed there till the morning time. فَلَمَّا أَصْبَحْنَا غَدَتْ عَلَيْنَا جِلَّةُ قُرَيْشٍ حَتَّى جَاءُونَا فِي مَنَازِلِنَا He says when morning time came, we saw that a group from the Quraysh, and it specifically mentions that Ashiyakhun, Masanun, that these were not just ordinary people from the Quraysh, these were the leaders of the Quraysh, some of the most senior leaders of the Quraysh, they came to us, and they visited us where we were camped, and they addressed us. They said, Ya Ma'ashar al-Khazraj, O people of Khazraj, O people of Medina, إِنَّهُ قَدْ بَلَغَنَا أَنَّكُمْ قَدْ جِئْتُمْ إِلَىٰ صَاحِبِنَا هَذَا We know that you've come to visit our friend here. And they're referring to the Prophet ﷺ. تَسْتَخْرِجُونَهُ بَيْنَ أَظْهُرِنَا وَتُبَايِعُونَهُ عَلَىٰ حَرْبِنَا And you want to take him from amongst us, you want to remove him from our city, our community. And not only that, but you have given him an oath of allegiance to fight against us. You're willing to fight us for him. So you've put your lot in with him. We, we know this. We got information, we know what's going on. وَإِنَّهُ وَاللَّهِ مَا مِنْ حَيِّمْ مِنَ الْعَرَبِ أَبْغَدُ إِلَيْنَا مِنْ أَنْ تَنْشَبَ الْحَرْبُ بَيْنَنَا وَبَيْنَهُمْ مِنْكُمْ He says that there is no other community from the Arab that we would not want to fight, we would dislike having any conflict with more so than you. Like, you're the last people that we want to fight. We have no beef. We have no issues. Again, I don't want to jump ahead of myself here because we're going to be talking about this, but what's very interesting is that when the Battle of Badr even occurs, and the habit of the Arab was that when they would have a battle, they would have the Mubarat. Individuals from both sides would come into the middle, and they would have kind of like a showdown. A couple of individuals at a time initially to start things off, and then the battle would ensue. When this occurred, some of the Ansar, fast forwarding two years to the Battle of Badr, when some of the Ansar, they stepped forward for these showdowns, the Quraysh at that time also again objected, saying some of the, some of the fighters from the Quraysh who came forward said, I don't even know who you are. I don't even know who you are. Why would I be fighting you? I got no reason to fight you. Me and you, we have no relationship, no grudge, no beef with one another. What, 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 who are you? Why would I fight you? So there's this idea that's there. So again, here they come to them and they say, we don't want to fight you. We have no history with you. We have no beef with you. We have nothing to do with you. So we would very severely dislike falling into a conflict with you when we don't even have a problem with you. So they say, so then... فَانْبَعَثَ مَنْ هُنَاكَ مِنْ مُشْرِكِي قَوْمِنَا يَحْلِفُونَ مَا كَانَ مِنْ هَذَا شَيْءٌ وَمَا عَلِمْنَاهُ قَالَ وَصَدَقُوا لَمْ يَعْلَمُوا So they basically go on to mention that they make this proposition. Now the Ansar, you know, they say, how did these people even find out? And they realize that some of the... Because remember I had mentioned that these 60, 70 Muslims who come for the Hajj, they're traveling amongst a couple of hundred people who are not Muslim from their people, from their area. So they say that some of 
The mushrikun that are traveling with us must have gotten wind of this, must have realized something was going on or they were spying and they went and informed them. So he said that now that all of this is happening, the narration mentions that, وَبَعْضُنَا يَنْظُرُ إِلَى بَعْضٍ We started looking at each other. Like what do we do here? How do we exactly handle this situation? And one of our people stood up and he basically said that, we have nothing more to say to you about this. We have nothing more to say to you about this. We're not here to compromise. We're not here to negotiate. We have nothing more that we'd like to say to you about this. But this is it. So we have right here a couple of things that I wanted to mention. Number one was that as soon as the, the bay'ah, this oath of allegiance occurs, some of the Ansar are willing to go and start fighting. And the Prophet ﷺ calms them down. The next morning you have the Quraysh coming and trying to intimidate the Ansar. That are you sure you want to do this? You want to put your lot in with him? And again, the Ansar are standing strong and not giving in. Another third incident immediately in the aftermath that is actually very interesting is Ibn Ishaq mentions, and Ibn Hisham also mentions in a seerah, that Kab bin Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu, as he's telling the story, he mentions that somebody went to Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul who is later on in the seerah known as Ra'isul Munafiqeen, the leader of the hypocrites. So somebody goes to him and they tell him everything that has occurred and transpired. And at this point in time, they don't know that Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul is going to be so opposed to the Prophet ﷺ, but he was also a leader amongst, his, amongst the people. So they were actually hoping that he would be an ally. And so when they tell him, Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul says, إِنَّ هَذَا الْأَمْرِ جَسِيمٌ مَا كَانَ قَوْمِ لِيَتَفَرَّقُوا عَلَى مِثْلِ هَذَا وَمَا عَلِمْتُهُ كَانَ فَانْصَرَفُوا عَنْهُ So the people that go and inform him, he says that this is a very serious issue. This is a very serious issue. I see that people, our community will begin to become split over this. So he says, I want you guys to go from here, and I don't want any more people to go and get involved with this situation. After that point in time, he sends word to the Quraysh that there are some people here who are causing problems, they're going to be gathering some strength, some numbers against you, you should try to take care of this situation, and you might have my help, you have my support. So they basically come out looking for some of these people and they start chasing, they start chasing after a couple of individuals and they're able to find Sa'ad bin Ubadah radiallahu ta'ala anhu and Munzir bin Amr who was the brother of Sa'idah bin Ka'ab bin al-Khazraj and they, both of these were appointed as leaders of the Ansar by the Prophet and they start, they find these people leaving Mecca, heading back to Medina, and they basically start chasing after them. Al-Mundir bin Amr is basically able to escape. Sa'ad bin Ubadah radiallahu ta'ala anhu gets captured by this group of people. And so the narration says that they grab him, they tie him up, they restrain him, and they basically start taking him back to Mecca, and they're beating him and they're hitting him, and they're torturing him. And the narration actually mentions that 
وَيَجْذِبُونَهُ بِجُمَّتِهِ وَكَانَ ذَا شَعْرٍ كَثِيرٍ Sa'ad bin Ubadah radiyallahu ta'ala who had long hair and they grabbed him by his hair and they were dragging him by his hair. So they're beating him, they're kicking him, they're dragging him by his hair all the way back to Makkah to basically teach these people a lesson that who do these people think they are? They came here to our area, to Makkah, and they joined forces with this guy and they start talking to him about fighting against us. Who will teach these people a lesson? So from the encouragement of Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul, who is from Medina, who they see as a leader of this area, these people of Yathrib, they basically now come after, after he gives them certain assurances, they grab Sa'ad bin Ubadah and they start beating him and torturing him, bringing him back to Makkah. When they finally bring him back to Makkah and they tie him up and they just restrain him there, he's basically a prisoner. He says, فَوَاللَّهِ إِنِّي لَفِي أَيْدِيهِمْ I was, I was done for now. I was at their disposal, I was at their mercy. And I thought they would kill me before anybody could find out that they had me here. إِطَّلَعَ عَلَيَّ نَفَرُ مِنْ قُرَيْشِ A group of people of the Quraysh come. فيهم رجل وضيء أبيض شعشع حلو من الرجال. He said this man comes who's very, you know, just he's got this very illuminated face, like he seems like a friendly face. This man comes and he seems like he has a very friendly face and he has a very soft, you know, very um, sophisticated manner of speaking. And he says, فَقُلْتُ فِي نَفْسِي I thought to myself, إِنْ يَكُنَ عِنْدَ أَحَدٍ مِّنَ الْقَوْمِ خَيْرٌ فَعِنْدَ هَذَا He says, if there is anybody who's going to be good here, it'll be this guy right here. And he says, the second I was thinking this, that, فَلَمَّا دَنَا مِنِّي رَفَعَ يَدَهُ فَلَكَمَنِي لَكْمَةً شَدِيدَةً This, the while I was thinking that if anybody is good, if, any, if I can appeal to anybody's good senses, good nature, it'll be this guy. He seems like a good, decent person. He says, while I was thinking that, he came up to me and he slapped me as hard as he could. فَقُلْتُ فِي نَفْسِي لَا وَاللَّهِ مَا عِنْدَهُمْ بَعْدَ هَذَا مِنْ خَيْرٍ He goes, no, no, no. There's no good left here anymore. Like, that's it, I'm done for. And he says, I was again in their hands and I thought they are going to finish me. إِذْ أَوَالِي رَجُلٌ مِمَّنْ مَعَهُمْ A man from amongst them comes to me. He approaches me. Meaning he, he kind of felt sorry for me. He bet, felt bad for me. So when nobody else was looking, when they all kind of went off to the side, he comes up to me. <clears throat> and he says, وَيْحَكَ He says, man, what's wrong with you? He says, أَمَا بَيْنَكَ وَبَيْنَ أَحَدٍ مِنْ قُرَيْشِ جِوَارٌ وَلَا عَهْدٌ Don't you have any allies from Quraysh? Don't you have anybody, any hookups in Quraysh? Any personal connections in Quraysh? Like you got nothing? Come on. And he says, قُلْتُ بَلَا وَاللَّهِ He goes, no, no, I do, I do. لَقَدْ كُنْتُ أُجِيرُ لِجُبَيْرِ بِنْ مُطْعِمْ تُجَّارَهُ وَأَمْنَعُهُ مِمَّنْ أَرَادَ ظُلْمَهُمْ بِبَلَادِي وَلِلْحَارِثِ بْنِ حَرْبٍ أُمَيَّا بِنْ عَبْدِ الشَّمْسِ He says there are two people, Harith bin Umayyah and Jubair bin Mut'im. These two people, they were businessmen, very prominent businessmen from Makkah. And he says, I <clears throat> have an agreement with them that when they send their business caravans through the route that passes through Yathrib, through Medina, 
I grant them protection. And I am a leader amongst my people, so when people know that these trade caravans are protected by me, no bandits, nobody harms them, nobody attacks them, nobody tries to steal from them, because they know they have to deal with me. So these two guys, I have a long-standing relationship with them. He says, وَيْحَكَ فَهْتَفْ فَهْتِفْ بِإِسْمِ الرَّجُلَيْنِ He goes, okay, give me the names of these two individuals. وَذْكُرْ مَا بَيْنَكَ وَبَيْنَهُمَا And tell me exactly what your agreement is. قَالَ فَعَلْتُ He says, so I went ahead and did that. وَخَرَجَ الرَّجُلِ إِلَيْهِمَا This man, he goes out to find Harith bin Umayyah and Jubayr bin Mut'im. He finds both of them sitting near the Kaaba and he says to them, إِنَّ رَجُلًا مِنَ الْخَزْرَجَ الْآنِ يُضْرَبُ بِالْأَبْطَحِ لِيَهْتِفْ بِكُمَا He says that there is a man from Khazraj who is being beaten, he's being tortured to death basically, and he's calling both of you, he knows both of you. They said, who, who are you talking about? Man huwa? Who are you talking about? They said, bin, he says, Sa'ad bin Ubadah. I'm talking about Sa'ad bin Ubadah. Both of them say, Sadaq wallahi. Sadaq wallahi, he's, he's speaking the truth. If, you, if that's Sa'ad bin Ubadah there, then yes, we do have a relationship. He protects our business caravans. And he prevents our people from being harmed when they pass through his region, his area. So both of them come, فَجَاءَ فَخَلَّصَ سَعَدًا مِنْ أَيْدِيهِمْ فَانْطَلَقَ وَكَانَ الَّذِي لَكَمَ سَعَدًا سُهَيْلْ بِنْ عَمْرٍ So he basically comes and he releases Sa'ad bin Ubadah from, you know, being held from captivity. And the one who had slapped Sa'ad bin Ubadah, the guy who had the friendly face, and he slapped Sa'ad bin Ubadah was Suhail bin Amr. You know, this, you know why I say this is all very fascinating? These are all critical in, individuals. Sa'ad bin Ubadah is of course a leader of the Ansar and you see what he's going through. Alright, now I'll mention something else here. This man Suhail bin Amr, Suhail bin Amr was one of the people who, he was basically the person that the Quraysh would send later on as the chief negotiator in the sulah, in the agreement, the treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. Sulah Hudaybiyah, the treaty of Hudaybiyah, the primary negotiator from the Meccans, from the Quraysh, would be Suhail bin Amr. And part of what was so aggravating to him later on was, his own son had actually accepted Islam. His son had become a Muslim. So these are all very critical individuals. And speaking about Sa'ad bin Ubadah, what's very interesting is that Imam al-Bayhaqi rahimahullah ta'ala mentions in his book, Al-Dala'il, Dala'il al-Nubuwa, he actually talks about how Abu Sufyan, he says that he heard somebody saying, فَإِن يُسْلِمِ السَّعَدَانِ يُصْبِحْ مُحَمَّدًا بِمَكَّةَ لَا يَخْشَى خِلَافَ الْمُخَالِفِ he heard somebody saying in, at that time when these Ansar came and the word started spreading in Medina that these people are coming and they're accepting Islam and they're trying to take Muhammad over there and all of this is going on. That he remembers somebody saying that if the two Sa'ads accept Islam, become followers of Muhammad, tomorrow morning Muhammad will not fear the opposition of anyone in Mecca anymore. Abu Sufyan says, that the next morning he said, I asked, who are these two Sa'ads that you talk about? Is it Asad bin Bakr or Asad bin Hudayn? So he says, the second night, 
he hears the same poet saying, Aya Saadu, Saad al Ausi kuntu anta nasira, Waya Saadu, Saad al Khazrajina al Ghatarif al Ghatarifi, Ajiba ila da'il huda wa tamannaya ala Allahi fil fardawsi munyata arifi, Fa inna thawab Allahi li talibil huda, Jinanum min al firdawsi data rafarifi. That again, here's the poet talking about these two Sa'ads. One is from Aus and one is from Khazraj. One is from Aus, one is from Khazraj. And he talks about how they have answered the call of guidance and they have put their hopes in achieving and attaining paradise. Um, so the next day, Abu Sufyan says, Hua wallahi Sa'ad bin Mu'adh wa Sa'ad bin Ubadah. This has to be Sa'ad bin Mu'adh and Sa'ad bin Ubadah. And that was exactly it, that when the Prophet ﷺ was able to achieve, when he was able to gain, not just the confidence, but the support, and the faith and the belief of Sa'ad bin Mu'adh and Sa'ad bin Ubadah, that set the stage for the Prophet ﷺ to be able to go to Al-Madinatul Munawwara, and to be able to establish himself there and the community there. Because these two individuals, these two Sa'ad, Sa'ad bin Ubadah, Sa'ad bin Mu'adh were extremely influential people, whose influence was even understood in Mecca. That even the people of Mecca understood that these two people, if one is from Aus, one is from Khazraj, and their two tribes have been fighting, and they're very extremely influential. Their people will do whatever they tell them to do. If both of these guys get on the same page and join forces, Muhammad wasallam will really have some strong support at that point in time. And that is exactly what was achieved at this particular point in time. And that's what makes it so critical and so important. Now to talk about, again, the aftermath of these people accepting Islam and joining the Prophet the Ansar now depart from, and so uh, to wrap up the thing, one of these people, Sa'ad bin Ubadah, was the same one who was being tortured there by these people. And so you see all the stories kind of connecting together. Alright? And that's where Sa'ad bin Ubadah firsthand gets to see what the Muslims and what the Prophet have been going through there in Mecca. Now the Ansar, they leave Mecca, they leave Mina, they, go, they leave Hajj, and they go back to Yathrib, what we will call Al-Madinatul Munawwara. They go back to this blessed city of Medina. Now that they've given the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ, they've made an agreement to where now Muslims will start to arrive in Medina. They go back there, and they basically now openly proclaim their Islam. Everyone and anyone who's a Muslim comes out and basically says, we are Muslims, this is our community, we're establishing a community, we're going to be bringing them a lot more Muslims and the Prophet ﷺ and, and, and establishing a community here. And they specifically go to some of the leaders of their people, the elders of the community, who all of them have not accepted Islam yet. They specifically go to them to show them some respect and also appeal to them and try to gain their confidence and their support. Amongst them is an elder of the community, his name is Amr bin al-Jamuh. Amr bin al-Jamuh. So I'd, I'd like to share this particular story with you, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about him. Amr bin al-Jamuh, he was one of the elders of the, the community in Yathrib in Medina. He was still a mushrik at this particular time. He's very elderly, he's very senior, he's very respected. His son Mu'adh bin Amr, 
not only has accepted Islam, but he actually went with the people who went in this second oath of allegiance and accepted Islam and gave the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ. So Mu'adh bin Amr, his own son is a Muslim now. So they come to Amr bin al-Jamuh and they present the message to him and there are actually narrations that talk about when Musa bin Umair a year ago when Musa bin Umair radiallahu ta'ala anhu came to Medina when he came to Yathrib he when his son he forbade Amr bin al-Jamuh had four sons and it was like the pride of the family he had these four young big strong sons he had forbidden his son from going and talking to Musa bin Umair one of his sons ended up accepting Islam he even asks his son what does this guy say? What does he say to you? That you go and you listen to him and it said that his son recited Surah Al-Fatiha to him. At which Amr bin al-Jamuh didn't really have any response. So he had had some interaction. He had spoken to Musa bin Umair. He had kind of reprimanded him. Who are you? Why are you here? Why are you trying to take away our youth and split up our community? So he had had some interaction, but he was this elderly individual who was very well respected, was still practicing his shirk, wasn't really comfortable with all of this, you know, new stuff that was going on there in Medina, in his city. Now, this part of the story is very interesting, but also a little funny as well. His son Mu'adh bin Amr, and uh, Amr bin al-Jamuh was a leader of Banu Salima. Banu Salima, who were some of the inhabitants of Medina. You know the masjid that we refer to today as Masjid Qiblatain? Right? That's actually the masjid of Banu Salima. So, there were, so he was one of the leaders of Banu Salima. So along with his son Mu'adh bin Amr, there was another young man from Banu Salima who had also become a Muslim. His name was Mu'adh bin Jabal. That should ring a bell, famous Sahabi. Alright, and that's why Mu'adh bin Jabal was appointed as the Imam of the Masjid of Bani Salima by the Prophet So now these two young men, Mu'adh bin Jabal and his own son Mu'adh bin Amr, what they basically do is that this man Amr bin al-Jamuh, he had an idol that he used to keep in his home and that he used to look after. He was the elder, the leader of his people. There was an idol that they referred to as Manat. It's talked about in the Qur'an as well, right? So the idol called Manat, which was a very big important idol to the people in that region, the mushriks of that region, right? He used to keep it in his home, look after it and take care of it. Because he was the leader, he was the elder, the senior. So his own son Mu'adh bin Amr and Mu'adh bin Jabal, his friend, two young guys, they basically decide to kind of mess around a little bit with the old man or with his idol. So what they do is that every evening he would, you know, clean up the idol and, you know, present an offering and dress it up and rub perfume on it, etc. Like kind of, you know, take care of it, maintain it. And then he'd go to sleep and he was a very old elderly man, so he'd go to sleep. They would sneak in at night, grab the idol, and they would take it and there were some ditches outside of the area of where Banu Salima lived, there were some ditches out there where they basically used to go and, you know, throw their waste, you know, dump 
all the waste and even you know use the restroom and all that kind of stuff out there and they would take this they took this idol and they went and they threw it over there and then they came back at night they snuck back at night he wakes and uh, it specifically mentions they dropped it upside down into like a ditch full of waste now when Amr bin al-Jamuh wakes up in the morning he doesn't see the idol and he's like who took the idol who did this and he would go out looking for the idol until he found it there in that ditch in the waste and he's furious so he takes the idol out he washes it down he cleans it up you know he puts perfume on it he fixes everything up and he puts it and he says that wallahi if i find out who's doing this i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to teach them a lesson i'll take care of them so again, the next day occurs, he's maintaining it, taking care of it, he goes to sleep, they sneak back in at night, they grab the idol, they go and they throw it again in a ditch full of waste. He wakes up in the morning, again finds it, he's just furious. And they, you know, he brings it back, cleans it up and puts it back. The third day, they come and they do the same exact thing. He again finds it the third morning, he's angry, he's furious, he brings it back, cleans it up and puts it back in its place. That evening when he's about to go to sleep, he before going to sleep, he, he's just, it's starting to kind of occur to him. Like, this is just unbelievable. This is my God. And somebody comes and takes him every single night and throws him in a ditch full of human waste. Like basically dunks him in the toilet. Like I don't understand what's going on. So he's a little frustrated now. So he takes his sword and he put thumma jaa bisayfihi fa'allaqahu alayhi and he ties his sword around the neck of the idol and he says, "Inni wallahi ma a'lamu man yasna'u bikab ma ara." He says, "I don't know who's messing around with you." But he says, فَإِن كَانَ فِيكَ خَيْرٌ فَمْتَنِعْ فَهَذَا سَيْفْ مَعَكَ He says that if you are good, if you are actually a god, then defend yourself. I'm leaving my sword with you. I'm asking you, please defend yourself. So now when he goes to sleep, and these two guys, they come, his own son being one of them, um, they come here again and they come and they see a, a sword hanging from the neck of the idol. They're like, oh, this has gotten really serious. So they take the sword out. They put the sword down. They go and they take the idol. Again, I'm not condoning any of this, just telling the story. They find a dead dog. You know, just maybe lying by the side of the road, like roadkill. They find a dead dog. They tie the idol to a dead dog, all right, Kalban Megitan. And then they, they tie this idol to a dead dog and they go to one of the empty abandoned wells of Banu Salima. And they throw the idol tied to a dead dog into this abandoned well. The next morning he wakes up, he finds the sword lying there. He goes to where he normally, the idol's not there. He goes to where normally the idol is, in the ditch, in the toilet. He doesn't see the idol over there. So he goes around looking for it, asking everyone about it. He finally stumbles upon this abandoned well and he looks inside and he sees this idol, you know, upside down, 
inside of this abandoned well, tied to a dead dog. And this is just too much for him. So he says, no, this is it. This doesn't make sense anymore. I'm leaving you here. I'm leaving you here. He goes and he actually says, I need to talk to one of these Muslims that have been talking about not worshipping these idols. I'd like to talk to one of you now. They hear that Amr bin al-Jamuh, Shaykh, right? Old, elderly, like man and leader, respected individual. He's asking to speak to a Muslim about Islam. So they're excited, they come to him, they talk to him, and he accepts Islam. فَأَسْلَمَ بِرَحْمَةِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى وَحَسُنَ إِسْلَامُهُ وَحِينَ أَسْلَمَ عَرَفَ مِنَ اللَّهِ مَا عَرَفَ وَهُوَ يَذْكُرُ صَنَمَهُ ذَلِكَ وَمَا أَبْصَرَ مِنْ أَمْرِهِ وَيَشْكُرُ اللَّهَ الَّذِي أَنْقَذَهُ مِمَّا كَانَ فِيهِ مِنَ الْعَمَى وَالضَّلَالَ And he not just accepted Islam, but he, like they say, وَحَسُنَ إِسْلَامُهُ he perfected his Islam. Like he really excelled in the practice of his faith. He didn't just ceremoniously accept Islam and then go right back to life. No, he actively embraced his faith and his religion and he practiced Islam. And he used to remember, he used to recall that idol in this whole incident and talk about it and tell people about it. And then he used to thank Allah for saving him from this blindness, this spiritual blindness and this, um, this, this dalala this misguidance that he was drowning in, and he used to say these couplets. He used to say, Wallahi, لَوْ كُنْتَ إِلَهًا لَمْ تَكُنْ أَنْتَ وَكَلْبٌ وَسْطَ بِئْرٍ فِي قَرْنِي أُفِّنْ لِمُلْقَاكَ إِلَهًا مُسْتَدًا الْآنَ فَتَشْنَاكَ عَنْ سُوءِ الْغَبَنِي الحمد لله العلي ذي المنن الواهب الرزاق ديان الدين هو الذي أنقذني من قبل أن أكون في ظلمة قبر مرتهني. He said these couplets. He's speaking to the idol. He says that I swear to Allah, if you would have been a god, you never would have ended up tied to a dead dog inside of a well. That if you were a god, that just wouldn't happen. Is that too much to ask? Right? He says that it is so just unbelievable what ended up happening to you. And it really shows that believing in you, how misguided it was. He says the ultimate praises to Allah, the one who has blessed us with all the favors, the one who has given us all the gifts that we enjoy, the one that blesses us with the sustenance, and the one who has provided the true proper deen, the religion. He is the one who saved me from ending up in the darkness of my grave, subjected to punishment due to my disbelief. So he used to thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and quote these couplets and talk about this incident. I wanted to just kind of conclude this particular story by talking about Amr bin al-Jamuh, who he actually was and what he actually went on to you know, achieve or become. This is again fast forwarding a little bit, but there will be lots of stories at that time to talk about this. But since we're talking about Amr bin al-Jamuh, because it is a very interesting story, because it's a story about a very, very elderly man, who is very respected amongst his people, who's very set in his ways for 60, 70, 80, God knows how many years, he's been worshipping an idol. He is the caretaker of an idol. So yet after all of this, he realizes this is wrong and he accepts Islam. 
But you see the effect of being, you know, in the company of the Prophet ﷺ and being a part of that community and how it motivated everyone. So Amr bin al-Jamuh, one of the effects of old age on him was that he had lost um, a lot of ability and movement in one of his legs. So he was very severely... Um, like he, he really seriously struggled with one of his legs. And because of that, it wasn't, it was almost to the point of where it was a physical disability. Like he couldn't even walk properly. He couldn't walk on his own. He would need help and support when he walked. So it was that bad. When the Battle of Badr came around, and the community's built now, right? For a year and a half, for almost two years, the community's been developing and building, and they've been in the company of the Prophet ﷺ. So fast forwarding to the Battle of Badr, when the Battle of Badr came, and everyone was going, and all of his sons were also going, he said, I want to go as well. And his sons went to the Prophet ﷺ, and they said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, our father is a very old man. He's a very old man. And on top of that, he has his physical disability. Please, can you let him know, explain to him that he doesn't have to go? He won't listen to us, obviously. His sons are like, Dad, you don't have to go. He said, be quiet, you don't know anything. Right? So, they said, can you please explain to him? So when he comes to the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ says that you're an elderly man, you have this physical disability, you do not have to go. And at the insistence of his family, his sons he doesn't end up going. From that point on, he, he just felt so terrible about it. He would always keep like yelling at his sons that you people kept me out of paradise. You boys kept me out of Jannah. I was gonna go to the battle of Badr. You kept me away from this. And he was just furious, he was angry with them. So now when the battle of Uhud came around, and he used to tell them, he says, I swear to Allah, if another situation, another opportunity comes up, nobody will keep me back. Nobody. Don't you even look at me. So when the battle of Uhud came around, he said, I'm going, that's it. And his sons were like, you know, um, and he goes to the Prophet ﷺ from before. As soon as the announcement of the battle of Uhud made is, he goes to the Prophet ﷺ and he says, O oh, Messenger of Allah, it is my full intention to come with you. I will come with you. My sons will try to stop me. They will come to you. You gotta have my back this time. Right? And so he goes home and he starts putting on his armor and his helmet and everything. He's ready to go, picking up his sword and his shield. And his sons are like, here we go again. They're like, you're not going to listen to us. He's like, that's right, I'm not going to listen to you. So they go to the Prophet ﷺ, and he shows up full, ready in armor, like, let's go, when are we leaving? And they're like, Ya Rasulullah, please explain to him, look at his leg and this and that. And the Prophet ﷺ, seeing the zeal, the passion, the desire that this man has. The Prophet ﷺ says, they, they say, look, O Messenger of Allah, look, he can't even walk properly. Because he's like, you know, using his sword like as a cane. And he's like hobbling along and kind of walking along barely. And he say, look Ya Rasulullah, look how he walks. He can't even walk properly. Look at his leg. And the Prophet ﷺ said, why wouldn't you want him to walk like that in paradise? Why are you depriving your father of that opportunity? Let him go. Sami'na wa ta'na. Right? Muhammadur Rasulullah ﷺ. Sami'na wa ta'na. So they say, that's it. Whatever you say, O Messenger of Allah. So, um, this man, Amr bin al-Jamuh, the narration mentions that his wife later on tells a story that before he left the home, he made a dua. 
She heard him making dua. When he put on his armor and he was about to leave his home, he made dua. He said, Allahumma rzuqni ash-shahada. Allahumma rzuqni ash-shahada. Allahumma rzuqni shahadatan fi sabilik. Oh Allah, grant me martyrdom. Allow me to give my life in your path for your deen, for your cause. Wala taruddani ila ahli khaiban. وَلَا تَرُدَّنِي إِلَىٰ أَهْلِي خَائِبًا And do not return me back to my family humiliated. What he meant in his expression was, Ya Allah, I don't want to come hobbling back to my family as you know some old, disabled man anymore. I want to go out with glory. So he goes out to the battlefield. And narration mentions that his sons were like, Alright, fine, you came out here. But you can't stop us from protecting you. So they surrounded him. And then in the battle of Uhud, when things started breaking down and the Prophet ﷺ was being attacked, him and all of his sons went to go defend the Prophet ﷺ. And his sons, you know, it mentions that some of his sons were also shaheed. And he also basically fell shaheed at that time. And later on, him and his nephew, him and his nephew, when his wife came later on to arrange for the burial to bring the shrouds, the, the kafan, um, or just to just in come in general and identify the body for the burial, that the Prophet ﷺ commanded that both him and his nephew be buried together. And at that point in time, the Prophet ﷺ says something very, very beautiful. The Prophet ﷺ walked by his body, stopped and looked at his body lying there. And the Prophet ﷺ says, Inni ara, inni araka. I see you right now. Like it's as if like the Prophet ﷺ was being shown like a vision. He says, Inni araka tamshi. I see you walking in paradise with the same leg. But it's okay now. I see you walking, standing upright, walking fast, walking brisk, healthy, fine, with your leg, and it's absolutely fine, and I see you walking in paradise. And he told the family members, I see your father, I see your husband, walking proudly in paradise. And his leg is fine, his leg is okay. So this is the story of Amr bin al-Jamuh. He was one of those leaders of that community in Medina who ended up accepting Islam when the Ansar, they reached back into Medina. What we'll be talking about insha'Allah in the next session is we'll actually talk about Bad'ul Hijrati min Makkah ila al-Madina. We'll talk about the beginning of migration, the movement from Makkah to Medina and the Muslims beginning to make their way from Makkah to Medina. And we'll talk about some of those real powerful human stories that occurred at that time so that we can appreciate their sacrifice. They were rewarded with Medina, but that didn't come for free. They, we've talked about 13 years of struggle in Makkah and then even the journey from Makkah to Medina was a journey. A lot of them didn't survive. And a lot of them had to go through a lot in order to make it there. And then finally, you know, even once they reach Medina, then we'll be talking about the Medinan era and how the sacrifices continued on into the Medinan era. And if nothing else, the appreciation that we can take from this, what we can walk away from is that we are the beneficiaries. We are the beneficiaries of a deen, of a religion, of a tradition that has gone through so much, that, that, that so much sacrifice, so much you know, difficulty, so much blood, lives, sweat, 
you know, has been poured into it in order to bring it here to us to this point. We might be enjoying the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, we sit in our comfortable cars and we drive over here and we walk into this comfortable masjid and we pray on this carpet and we sit here, you know, relaxing comfortably, listening to 30 minutes, 45 minutes of a discussion about the life of the Prophet ﷺ. These are the blessings of Allah. We don't have to feel guilty. We don't have to feel guilty that we enjoy the blessings of Allah. But we do have to appreciate what has gone into bringing it to, to this particular point. What we, we are reaping the fruits, the harvest of this legacy. This is a legacy of great sacrifice. A lot has gone into it. So appreciating what all these generations, what these people, what these families, these generations, these individuals, this entire community, what they went through to ensure that the deen would reach us one day, 1400 years later. And that's why we learn about them. That's why we talk about them. That's why we educate ourselves about this. And we make dua that may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward them on our behalf. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, may Allah, this is why we say, radiallahu anhum, may Allah be pleased with them. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to follow in their footsteps and benefit from their legacy. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, subhanakallahu wa bihamdik, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nasaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.